Hello everyone, this is Hashim of Economics or Hashim of Iqtisadiyata. Hashim of Economics is a series of conversations about economics, science, development, education, Central Asia and Uzbekistan. Hope you enjoy. So why Central Asia? How did I get interested in Central Asia yes. and why? So um, when I was an undergraduate, actually I'll start back in high school. Okay. Um, I went to a high school in Pittsburgh, my native Pittsburgh, um, and I studied Russian in high school. Why? Uh, all the girls were studying French. I'm a bit of a contrarian. Okay. And it was the time of perestroika, glasnost, lots of interesting things were happening, yeah. and I was always very interested in the news. Okay. Uh, my grandmother taught me how to read on the newspaper. Okay. So I'd sit with my grandmother who lived with us and she taught me how to read um, with the newspaper and I was always interested in current events. Okay. So when we had a choice of languages in school I chose Russian. Does it any, has anything to do with uh, Perestroika's uh, movement towards you know uh, freeing up certain communities like Jewish communities to, to travel to the US and then there was some kind of assimilation programs that, that were in America? Like I had the most amazing teacher of Russian in, in school, but she, had no, she was not Russian, um, and she had no practice studying Russian. I mean, really speaking, because there weren't many. Uh -huh. you know, at that time, it was very closed. In the middle of my high school years, a, a, a huge uh, diaspora came from the former Soviet Union. The, many of the Jewish families um, came to our community, and she really got into it. I was tutoring many of them in um, English. Okay. And then I was practicing Russian. Um, and it was really uh, interesting because, you know, I finally got to speak it for the first time. And, you know, it was one thing, I think in Uzbekistan it's very similar. You have lots of English teachers yes. who teach English, but they don't have practical experience speaking with something, someone. It was the very same thing for us with Russian. And so uh, I went to university. I went to Georgetown. Georgetown yeah. And I went to their uh, foreign service program, which is like diplomatia here. <laughs> and you know context really diplomatia, well. Diplomatia. Yeah. Yeah. And we had to, in order to graduate, you have to be fluent in a foreign language. So what's the level of fluency they ask for? Uh, so like on the scale of one to five, probably four. I see. Okay. In order to get your diploma. And so I said, okay, I'll continue studying Russian. Well, I got to university and they said, well, you've studied four years of Russian in high school. We'll put you in second year Russian. So I get there, and uh, what I thought I knew in high school was not very much. So I was like failing my courses in Russian, and the Russian professors were really strict, and I was getting like really bad grades. And I thought I was going to fail out of university because, because of, of Russian. Russian. Uh -huh. So, um, and we had this requirement to uh, be fluent, like in order to graduate. I said, what am I going to do? Maybe I should go to another university. So I ended up studying abroad in Moscow. And I was studying in Moscow in 1995. Uh, which university was hosting you? Um, it was, um, it's very interesting. It was, a pr it was a study abroad program in the former High Party School. Ah, okay, uh, I see. Like, you know, Diplomatia University? Yes. Was uh, Partschkola before? So this was the same, same thing, Partschkola. Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, I was studying there during the time when the war in Chechnya began. Okay. And this was my third year in university. And so I had done two years of coursework in, in things like you know, Soviet, post-Soviet studies, Russian politics, culture, history, and so forth. And I had never heard of Chechnya. Oh, wow. And I said, what is this? What is this war? I didn't understand it. And I said, what a bad education I've gotten. 
is so biased towards Russia. Towards Russia, yeah. Um, I learned about Catherine the Great, Ivan the Terrible, all of this. But, you know, to be fair, there wasn't much knowledge about Central Asia or the Muslim parts of the former Soviet Union. These just were places that were not accessible. I really enjoyed this, and I started getting very interested in sort of the Muslim parts of Central Asia. I studied Turkish um, because I understood that many of the languages in Central Asia and the Caucasus were Turkic. Yes. But at that time, this was 96, 97, you couldn't find anything okay. about Uzbekistan or or Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan. It just wasn't available. And how did you end up in, uh, in Samarkand? Like, tell us a little bit okay, more. Okay, so when I was finishing um, my undergraduate program, uh, I didn't know really what to do. And in fact, part of me wasn't sure I really wanted to continue working in the Soviet, former Soviet yeah. space because my Russian professors were so mean. Okay. <laughs> and I said, like, like the language professors. The language yeah. professors. Yeah. Okay. Um, they were lovely, but, you know, there was no great inflation. Like, oh, okay. they were really tough. And I started getting very interested in Africa, actually. And there was a lot of very interesting things happening what in West Africa. What part of Africa? Uh, West Africa. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I had a professor who was American, and he was a former journalist. And I took all of his courses on West Africa. Mm. And he was a Peace Corps volunteer. And when I, and, uh, when I was finishing my undergraduate, uh, he was a, a mentor to me. Uh, and I said, I don't really know what I want to do. Many of my classmates are going off to work in government. They're going to work in consulting. I just don't know what I want to do. Uh, and he says, well, have you thought about the Peace Corps? And I said, no. And he explained to me a little bit more about it. I mean, it's very famous in the yeah, U.S. Yeah. We know what this is. Especially in like places like Georgetown, right? I'm sure yes. it's, it's like one of the important parts. Yes, of, sending of people career. off yeah, to the yeah. Peace Corps. Um, and so I applied. And they said, well, you speak Russian. I said, well, maybe. <laughs> um, because you speak Russian, we'll send you anywhere you want in the former Soviet Union. And how did you choose Uzbekistan? So they said, tomorrow you can go to Poland. I said, that's not in the Soviet Union. Lithuania, <laughs> anywhere. And I said, what about Central Asia? So you, you came up with it. It's I not came they, up with okay. it. And they said, oh, we have Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. I said, wow, that would be great. They said, oh, well, nobody wants to go there. Oh. I said, what about Uzbekistan? They said, sure. Yeah. So I think I was the first person who asked. Really? Yes. Wow, okay, that's and, so cool. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that much about Uzbekistan. I mean, it's, um, but even it was, now, yes. a lot of people don't know a lot of right, things right, about right, it. Right, right, right. That's cool. So let me ask you more about your dissertation that, you know, became okay. the book that, that you published okay. with Cambridge University Press about Afghanistan. Okay. And, um, when you were researching this topic, like one of the questions, like you know, asking for a friend kind of question, is that what was your priors when you were writing this book? So, because you know, I also try to do some research, and there is some kind of priors that you want to kind of fit into that. So, when you were writing this book before you knew the results, before this, before you even flied out to Afghanistan or something, what was your priors? So. You know, after all of these years in the Peace Corps, I worked for USAID, yes. the U.S. Agency for International Development, and I worked on um, governance promotion and community development. In Uzbekistan. In Uzbekistan, yes. working in Mahalas. Yes. And I, what I loved about Uzbekistan, and the heart of my research is on communities, yes. and I was very inspired by what I saw here, about the ability of people uh, without many financial resources to come up with very clever solutions to solve their own problems. Mm -hmm. and, but I also really believed in the power of external assistance and aid to help mobilize people. 
So the book that I wrote on Afghanistan was on community governance. Yeah. My prior was that I expected aid agencies to be able to harness the capabilities of Afghans. I expected Afghans to have very strong capabilities to organize themselves, very similar to what I saw in Mahalas here. I expected the two of these to be able to work together and elevate the Afghan people. And I had very high expectations for these donor projects. Okay. And I looked a lot at um, donor-supported village government programs in rural Afghanistan. So in terms of, uh, if I would ask you, what was you know, the most surprising part of your study, you would probably tell me how your priors weren't confirmed. Absolutely wrong. Okay. I so, was absolutely so wrong. Can you tell us a little bit more? So what was the thing that you were absolutely surprised and were like, no way this is true? Like, what was it? So I expected aid to be effective. Oh, okay. And I found it to be completely ineffective. The other thing that I found that really surprised me was many people in Kabul and um, research community had, you know, had written books or scholars had written books saying that the traditional or the customary system of governance, their mahalas, yeah. had broken down during the war. That over decades of war, nothing was left. Um, people had emigrated, villages were destroyed, all social capital was gone. And that was one prior. The other prior was that the aid would be effective. I found both to be really wrong. So just to recap, so the, they thought, the, the research community thought that uh, social capital is gone because of the war. War, okay. So the war made, made sure that there, there's no social capital Everything's, left. Everything's, you know, you imagine Afghanistan, it's this place that's it's destroyed. Like stateless anarchy. Stateless kind of place. anarchy, nothing. But I then you come and find out that there is a lot of uh, social networks and order, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So what I find is, you know, I, I started piloting my interview guides. So as a, you know, as a scholar, when I do interviews, a very systematic, methodological yeah. way of doing it. And I started going to villages outside of Kabul, uh, where, you know, I could go during the morning and come back at night and talk to people to see if my understanding is correct. And it was very apparent to me in just a couple of villages outside of Kabul that the donors were really ineffective. All of these big, huge programs that I'd read so much about, these wonderful success stories, were not very effective. And they weren't really important to people. Um, what I, do you mean by important, if I may ask? So if you, if you see the world as a foreigner, especially one who's working through aid programs, and, and a lot of researchers get their data from these aid programs, yes. right? Because they're the main interlocutors. So I'm reading these about rural Afghanistan, and the way I'm reading about rural Afghanistan is through the prism of donors. And the donors are saying, villages are transformed, we've created new village councils in every village in rural Afghanistan, we have village elections, and half men and half women are participating. We're giving them money. We're creating new village councils. It's replacing the old conservative, yeah. backward system. Just call it bad. bad. Bad system, yeah. Okay. And now we have this wonderful thing in these villages, and it's so great. And I read this coming from my aid and development background. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. I can't wait to look at this. Um, and then I get to a, a few villages outside of Kabul and I see like nobody knows anything about these programs. They have no importance to people. I'm asking the women. So when people, when I would come to villages, mm -hmm. um, they would see me as a foreign woman and expect that what I wanted to see was Afghan woman. 
doing things. So the man would say, oh, okay, okay, a foreign woman, bring out the woman, bring out the women's council. So the women would sit, I'd meet with them. And I remember my research assistants. I, I worked with, a, I trained a team of Afghan researchers because at the time that I was working about, you know, 10, 12 years ago, there was very small research capacity in Afghanistan. There were no master's programs, no PhD programs. So one of my mandates with, with this local organization I worked for was to train Afghan researchers. And I'm working with these research assistants who are just brilliant. And I remember this one uh, woman I worked with, she said, um, these women, she says, Habarnadora. Habarnadora? They don't have any information. They don't know anything. And I said, no, they, the fact that they don't have information about this means that they have, like, this is useful. Yeah. That they don't know anything yeah. is huge. It tells us that this program That's isn't very effective. Yeah. And this negative information is very useful information. Because if they don't know, it means it's not working. Okay. Um, and village after village after village, Habarnadora. I see. Nobody, Nobody knows. knows anything. Okay. Yes. So what was the, you know, least surprising part? Like, what was any priors that you thought were true and then it happened to be true? Like, was there any? Vast poverty. poverty. I mean, the poverty levels. You knew it was poor? And I knew it, it was happened. poor. And it was poor. I mean, okay. um, maybe the level of poverty was shocking and surprising to me because I could just never imagine something like that. Yeah. Um, but the poverty levels are quite... Um, devastating. So let me ask you uh, like a tangential question about poverty because I I, uh, I, I think about this process right. quite a bit. There's one researcher named uh, Senhil Mullainathan in, uh -huh. in Harvard yeah, yeah. and he has this book called Scarcity. Mm -hmm. So he writes about poverty in, in developed countries like the US and he says if you are poor and you're barely like you know meeting your ends and it, it's really hard you live check to check and you know you're barely surviving it's like missing out lots of sleep. So your cognitive capabilities in making decisions that are rational are, are pretty bad. So a lot of people who are poor are making decisions as if um, they're not calculating this, you know, NPVs of whatever cash flows that they have. Do you think the same way about poverty in, in developing world? Like, do you think that poverty makes people choose, you know, or make suboptimal decisions or not so much? I don't know. Um, it's hard to say. I think the choices that people have, I think their choice set's very constrained. Correct. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Like poverty makes your choice set very constrained. Yes. But also when you are kind of optimizing through your choice set, do, do you think that they're not optimizing as well as they should have or, or, or it is too hard to say? I don't think it's hard for me to say. Okay, cool. I yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't sure about the, this part of the poverty. Um, so... I mean, it's, I think there's so much we don't understand, right? Yes. Like people here, um, you know, have big weddings. Yes. And people say, well, this is suboptimal, right? Like, I don't think so, though. Exactly. So Why that's don't what you I'm think saying. so, though? Well, I, th I think there's so much we don't understand. I like, there's, it's, it's not just about a party. Correct. And I think a lot of times when outsiders come or there's a new decree about yeah. making yeah. weddings small, yeah. right, weddings are just are more about more than just having a party. I agree. Yeah. Right? So tell me, why do you agree? So I think uh, the economics of weddings is absolutely rational. Okay. So think about it this way. Um, let's, let's talk about conspicuous consumption mm -hmm. from uh, not, not only in Uzbekistan. Just, right. just, just think about conspicuous consumption in the United States. Right. Who you think uh, spends more on or on signaling on on, on things that are uh, useless? Uh, people who are in types of careers or types of communities in which it's hard to understand people's social capabilities would spend more on conspicuous consumption. So, for example, if you go to Hollywood or something, people spend a lot more money on their cars and mm -hmm. their houses and so on. Why? Because it's hard to know which actress or which you know rapper is more successful. 
And the proxy for it is usually the consumption. But if you go to, I don't know, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, people are quite wealthy, as well right. as probably right. in West Hollywood, right. but they don't spend a, a lot because their social hierarchies are constructed on their H indexes or, you know, right. you know or, or something like that that is absolutely has nothing to do with, uh, with conspicuous consumption. Same thing goes for, like, you know, Silicon Valley. Like, people, you know, wear, you know, cheap T-shirts, but, like, investment bankers in New York or lawyers in New York have to buy expensive offices or they have to spend a lot more to signal to people their capabilities. Right. So when we come to Uzbekistan, because a lot of the things that we, uh, like in Uzbekistan, uh, most of the careers are not very meritocratic. And it's right. hard to know whether a person is doing well for themselves or not. Mm -hmm. You, I mean you, meaning like a person here, have to spend a lot more on their consumption to signal to people that they are actually mm -hmm. uh, high up. The second part that is very important in spending a lot of money in weddings. By the way, when I'm saying this, I don't want people to like say, and quote tomorrow that, oh, Bezad Hashimov or whatever, he thinks that people have to spend more on ratings. What I'm saying is not normative. <laughs> it's, it's not normative. What I'm right. saying is positive. Yes, of so, course. Uh, so, You're so, explaining. Yeah, he's I'm, explaining. He's not yeah, saying yeah. it's good or bad. He's just trying to explain So why. what I'm saying, why people have to spend a lot on yeah. weddings is if they don't, right. people would assume they're not doing well for themselves. Right. And the second thing that is very important is that a lot of money in Uzbekistan is made through connections, mm -hmm. not through like you know free competition. The markets are not very free, so in that kind of places, your societal levels are even more important. So right. like if you are contrarian and you're like, hey, I'm going to do my wedding in KFC, right. people might think, not that you're contrarian, but people might think you are like pretty bad in terms right. of whatever you're doing. You're not successful. And they don't want, yeah, you're not successful basically. So this signals to the community that you're not successful right. and they don't want to do business with you. So right. your social value, your social cap is going to shrink. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have to go overboard, you know, get debt or whatever to, to spend so much on wedding or, or, or other types of parties so that people think that you are fine, you know, doing yeah. fine. And second thing is that they want to, you know, deal with you. Right. And I think we're in this equilibrium, not because people are inherently dumb or they cannot calculate their right. potential but in fact it's because the way that economics is organized we are forced to do that you know conspicuous consumption it's not like we wanted to it's just right. we are forced to do that Th mm -hmm. that's my take what do you think yeah no i think i think that makes absolute sense oh, no. right and there's also uh you know social dynamics to it right within the family yes so that you're talking about the external yes. side of it and what it signals to the rest of the community, community. Yeah. but i think there's also it, what it signals to the bride's family Sure. Right, so those other kinds of things as well. Yeah, I mean, like when when or two people's family. Yeah, yeah, so when two people are making a match, for example, yes. in the U.S., they're like, "Hey, like the, the questions that people in America ask, like, right. where'd you go to school? Like right. Harvard? Where'd right. you go to school? Stanford?" And they're like, "They they, they know yes. the social side. Yeah, Here, yeah. it's really hard. Like, if you say I go to Narcos, it, it it can mean a lot of things. Right. There isn't yes. there isn't a thing. So how to know that you know bride's family or groom's family is, is doing fine for themselves is to look at their consumption. Of course. So without that, it's really hard. To make sense. What so, about laws to limit the size of weddings? Uh, I think that uh, the the fact that we spend so much money on it, or we're doing that, right. is not because there wasn't a law. Exactly. So the fact that people spend too much, they are pretty aware of it. Yes. It's just they can't help themselves. Right. I, I would say the same thing with uh, you know New York lawyers. They all buy uh, you know offices that looks at Central Park. They cost like millions of dollars. Does it help being a lawyer in a nicer office? I don't think so. But do they have to spend? Yes, because how do the firms would know right. that you're a successful lawyer right. if your office doesn't have a central park's view? I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's a bad equilibrium. Can we do something about it? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. 
in terms of the laws. It creates perverse incentives. Yeah, I mean, the, the incentives are created, I think, by the rules in the economy mm -hmm. rather than people's. Like, people didn't convene in one day and say, like, hey, guys, let's spend all of our savings on weddings. It wasn't right. no. just like that. Right. So if, if it wasn't like that, then banning that right. w w would be uh, as funny. So. Right, and people don't do it because they don't know better or they're <laughs> stupid or yeah, something, exactly, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes, especially outsiders, they go, oh, they have these big weddings. Why are they doing this? Why are they wasting all this money? Yes. And to me, it's there's an explanation for it. It's not a waste. There's yeah, a very yeah. specific meaning to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, that's good. We agree on that. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a little bit about diversity in Afghanistan, because mm -hmm. Afghanistan, oh, by the way, uh, one, one more caveat I want to add is that Uzbeks don't know a lot about Afghanistan. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I would ask you later why, sure. but, but right now is uh, Afghanistan being such a diverse country with a lot of languages and you know, non-trivial number of minorities that uh, have different cultures, mm -hmm. a very you know, ethnically heterogeneous, maybe sometimes even religiously heterogeneous. Yes. Uh, do you think it helps or hurts Afghanistan's development? It's a hard question. So I no, I think it. I, I think diversity helps, um, and I think one important thing that we should remember about Afghanistan is Afghanistan was founded in 1747. Okay. It's an old state. 1747. Do you mean Afghan Emirate, right? Uh, yes, okay. the, the the Durrani Empire uh, was founded in 1747, and the, that's the basis of what later became Afghanistan. And Afghanistan never fragmented since that period. And uh, so when we think, I think most outsiders, when we think of ethnic diversity, we think of you know, this group here and this group there, and, and this is a challenge because the country might split apart and yeah. won't stick together. Afghanistan is going to stick together. Okay? Why? Because it's, it's been together I see. and there's nowhere else to go. Um, so actually one of my, fav my favorite scholar on Afghanistan is an anthropologist named Tom Barfield. Mm -hmm. And he says what, are the Uzbeks in Uz Afghanistan going to go to Uzbekistan? No, they think the Uzbeks, in, well first of all the Uzbeks in Uzbekistan don't want them. Yeah. And second, the Uzbeks in Afghanistan think the Uzbeks in, Afghanistan, in Uzbekistan lost. They're losers. They're not they losers, lost, they so. got conquered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they drink vodka. I see. All right, so we don't want to hang like out with them. a difference. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a huge difference. Yeah. And they, they, don't, they don't think of themselves. You know? And the Pashtuns don't want to go to Pakistan. Who wants to go to Pakistan? And very interesting is that there's a Farsi-speaking, a Tajik community. Yes inside of Afghanistan, but they don't call themselves Tajiks. Hazara, right? They call uh, well, no, these are the uh, Farsi Zabon, uh, like the Northern Alliance, Ahmed Shah Massoud, oh, the Tajik yeah. Abdullah Abdullah. Yeah. These are the Tajiks. They call Taj yeah. We call them Tajiks. They don't call themselves Tajiks. How do I know? Because when I lived in Samarkand, I learned Tajiki. Yeah. And I have a very strong Samarkand accent really? when oh. I speak. And when I lived in Afghanistan, I would speak to people in Farsi, and they would say, Oh, you speak like a Tajik, even though they themselves are, are under this umbrella, what uh, outsiders call Tajiks. They don't use this word. They say, I'm Farsi Zabon, like I speak yeah, Farsi. I speak Farsi yeah. Or they, most more common, they refer to the region that they're from. So they're uh, Hirati, oh, okay. Balkhi, yeah. uh, Kabul. People refer to the region or even the valley they're from. Panchiri. So this becomes much more important than any kind of ethnic identity. Um, so you're saying identity. basically the heterogeneity in ethnic, you know, um, like the demography of Afghanistan yes. is not necessarily its weakness. No, not at all. I see. But, but there is some research uh, that some people argue that countries that were able to develop 
they had a very homogeneous um, you know demographics basically sure. the, what, what do you think of that kind of so it really depends on how we describe demographics right I mean language and, and, and culture language and culture so um, one of the things I found in my book is that outsiders and I many scholars make a big deal about differences between like Pashtuns and the rest of the country yes what I found in my research looking at the traditional system of governance is that if you go from one village to the next like a Turkmen village will say we're so different from those Pashtuns. But in fact they aren't. But right? in fact they're not. Yeah. Right? So yes there are some differences. They might use different words to describe things. But I opened up like how communities are governed and I looked at the rules and the processes by how they make decisions and they are very similar. And even I went to some like Uzbek villages and they're using Pashtun words to describe like instead of calling their village council a Shura, yeah. they're calling it a Jirga. Which like is a Pashtun. Pashtun war, yeah. So, what is it? The there's an expression in English I can't remember. It's something about the uh, about small differences. We take we tend to make a huge. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know your neighbor, right? Better than anybody else. But from the outside, you're actually kind of very similar. Similar. So yeah. it's I think in Uzbekistan very similar to, um, you know, Uzbeks and Tajiks. I see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Um, oh, they are very similar, but they think they aren't. Right? No, they're. Yeah. The, I yeah. mean. There's, and it, so I think this is a really good comparison. If you think about, so I lived in Samarkand, right? Urfo Datlar yeah. between Uzbeks and Tajiks are the same. Yes, I agree. But they don't think so. They don't think so. They're, it's just a linguistic difference. And in, in Samarkand, for example, it's a rural urban difference. It's a wealth yes. differential. Uh -huh. So you know someone from the village who comes. Yeah. Um, so other regions don't have this based on language. So. In Tashkent, you know who's coming from Tashkent region, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty obvious, and and I think that there there's certain institutional problems to it too. Like uh, during Soviet time, people from villages weren't able to come to cities as easily, and so there is like a whole bunch of stereotypes that kind of blow out oh, out yeah, of those. Oh yeah, system. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So of course. so I think the fact that we kind of over overestimate the, the cultural differences yes. is uh, is sad. Yes. Yeah, but but also like I think there's some kind of artificial attitude to it in terms of how it came uh, to fruition. And and this gives me the way to understand Central Asia, right? So yeah. like uh, Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, and one of the things they share in common is very strong regional identities. Yes. And so I don't think of so when we're asking about diversity, I don't think diversity undermines it because I don't think of the identities there based on ethno-linguistic, on the eth ethno-linguistic yeah, basis. It's more about the place, right? It's the regional differences. Yeah. Just as it is here, someone from Khorezm versus someone from Andijan are very different, especially linguistically, and they, pr they do have different cultural practices, right? And you see these, these identities on a spectrum. Now, the challenge that Af Afghanistan has is actually a new one in terms of ethnic identity, is that in the past 15 years, politicians at the national level have used ethnicity as a weapon. And so it's they been, pivoted to more, They pivoted, yeah. and they're start, they have... And it's really unfortunate, especially over the past 10 years, um, we've seen a lot more ethnic politics at the national level. And that's creating, when politicians use this, it's very dangerous. Mm. And so, so that artificially blows up the... Yes, yes. Uh, like I write about Propiska sometimes, and if yeah. you read comments, people are like, oh, how can you, you know, uh, demolish Propiska? Those are, those are different people, I, I, I hear. So the, the right, same, right, right. they're countrymen people think yes. about it. Defense Department, particularly, or like you know, 
okay, so military community in particular, or politicians, or, or different types of you know uh, communities understand about Afghanistan. Their understanding of, about Afghanistan was bad, or their judgment was bad. Do you think so, or not? In the beginning. In the was yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Absolutely. So what what exactly they got completely wrong? You think? I think they got many things wrong, and I want to say something very, be very clear about yeah. this. There's, it's so easy to criticize, uh -huh. and I've changed my mind on many things, right? Okay. And I think when we look back, um, we understand what our mistakes are now, and it's easy to, for me to point my finger and say, they should have done this, yeah. and they should have done that, but I also saw things differently. And looking back... No, but you are a researcher, yes. but they are deciding on going to yes. war. There's a huge difference of not understanding, like the cost of like, let's say you didn't understand that A doesn't work, for example, right. or it does work or whatever. Right. And then you're like, hey, I have to write a new paper about it or something. Right. But for them, the, the, the cost of mystic was just like blowing up the communities or like. So, so I think the, the easy assumption was that the Taliban would sort of disappear with Al Qaeda. Okay. Right. And that. Um, so the Taliban would just sort of go away and okay. could be defeated militarily. So and, there was this assumption, do you think? Oh, very strong assumption. And, and, you know, some of my colleagues have argued, you know, that the Taliban, the U.S. had a real opportunity to include the Taliban at the very beginning and make them part of the negotiation process. But there was such a strong feeling after 9-11 that, like, why, we don't want to negotiate with these people. Yeah. They blew up all yeah. this stuff. We don't want to make them part of this process. And also sort of exaggerating the stereotypes of, not exaggerating, misunderstanding the basis of the legitimacy of the Taliban. So it's all from Pakistan. They're all like foreigners, foreigners yeah. and they're importing the, you know, imposing these social norms that are completely alien. Right? And so I think that was a huge mistake. Um, but I think the biggest, so, you know, I, I'm not a military strategist. Yeah. I could say a little bit about what I think about the military strategy. What I see is on the civilian side and how the aid worked really to undermine the Afghan state. And I think one of the biggest assumptions was, all right, like, let's, let's Just go Just throw in, money on it, right? Throw money on it. And, uh, for example, one of the, the first decisions that was made in uh, 2001 in Bonn was to make the 1964 Constitution the basis of Afghan law. So, like, let's hurry up. Let's quickly do this. We need a law. Like, we don't want to spend all this money on state building. Remember George W. Yeah. Bush? He came to power on this, on the idea that, like, I'm not doing nation building. Clinton did that. Yeah. I'm not doing yeah. it. We're going to focus on America first, yeah. right? Okay. So he ended up not doing that. Yeah. Um, and, okay, let's just put that 1964 Constitution as the interim Constitution. And, uh, and then a couple of years later, they adopted a new constitution in 2004, January, at this Loya Jirga, which the new constitution was basically the 1964 constitution with some... Minor adjustments. Minor adjustments, elections for president, elections for parliament. Yeah, okay. But they kept the old administrative structure in place. And old administrative structure they had in Afghanistan was actually almost a carbon copy of Soviet model. Is it because Soviets taught them? Or? Yes. Okay. 1955. Oh, uh, Afghans, 1956, the first five-year plan huh. in Afghanistan. Uh, Kasigin and Khrushchev visited yeah. Afghanistan in 1955, right after the death of Stalin, to do communist, to begin communist internationalism. Oh, okay. And after this, um, the Afghans were desperate for cash. Uh, they had monarchs who didn't really have any resources. And so they started engaging more with the Soviet Union. 
to neighbor. It's natural, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, the, it's a really interesting story. And I'm actually writing a book on this right now. Wow, okay. Okay, so, and, and there's a really interesting story if you contrast the Soviet model of state building to what the Americans have done. And what the Soviets did is they really focused on institution building getting inside ministries, creating new rules, creating new structures. So the Afghan government is based on a planning model. That a is very Soviet. heavily Soviet centralized model. Yeah. All Hakims <laughs> are appointed by the government yeah. in the center. All provincial governors, all district governors. Oh, okay, wow. all of their Hakims, they're called Walis and yeah. Wulus Walls. They're appointed by the center. So. When the U.S. came in, everyone was in a rush. Okay, let's do gender stuff. Oh, yeah. Let's do SDGs. <laughs> yeah, SDGs. But let's let's you know. Okay, they had this old constitution. It, it seems okay. Let's just keep all this because they have this bureaucracy in place. Let's not mess with it too much because we don't want to spend the time on this, right? The U.S. didn't want to like get yeah. involved in all of this institutional engineering. But what it did. So if you were to ask me, why is the war continuing? It's because people had high expectations that their lives would change, that things would people be different. People meaning in Afghanistan? Afghan citizens. Okay. We've been through 30 years of war. We have suffered it's too so much. much. Yeah. So you come back to your village. So many people come back. I was there. Like with, People had such optimism. People really loved the international community. Really? Absolutely loved. I mean, I remember seeing people praising Bush and praising Obama. And it wasn't just to please me. Yeah. Like you really felt this positive momentum, and people were so hopeful in those early years. And then what happened was they experienced the same kind of government they saw for decades, with some governor who's appointed by Kabul. They have yeah. no say who that person is. They have a centralized planning system. All tax revenue that's collected at the local levels is remitted back to Kabul and then redistributed through a budget process. I see. Okay, yeah. so, and through line ministries. Oh, okay. All right, it's very similar. It's very similar to here. It's the exact yeah, same yeah, system. Yeah. And this is what I began to notice. But because I had so much, I spent so much time here, when I saw it there, it was extremely familiar to me. I was, it was like deja vu. Oh, wow. But I would tell this to people in the international community. I was like, the problems here is because they have this communist system. Yeah. And when you say communists, they're like, what do you mean communists? They're not communists. Yeah. No one's a communist. I said, no, no, it's the institutional the centralization design, of institutions, heavily yeah. centralized. And okay. people would say, oh, no, that's just the monarchy. And it's basically this, these old institutional structures completely undermine people's faith because it increased opportunities for corruption. Because who wants to be a governor in Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very dangerous job. And so all of these governors became roving bandits so like uh, Mankur Olsen definition of yes of, of yes exactly and so they just became very corrupt because they knew that they were going to be in this job for one or two years they're going to rotate around yeah. and the corruption is what alienated people and the corruption is what drives the insurgency so I tell people look the war in Afghanistan is not an ethnic problem it's not a religious problem it's, it's a governance problem and until the country solves the governance issue the war will continue because people don't want this state in the US you hear a lot about war in Iraq being a mistake mm -hmm. like almost all the politicians yes. say this yeah, yeah. but I rarely if ever hear that people say that war in Afghanistan was no. a mistake 
Right. So what's your take on that? No, I don't think it was. I think what what is the war now? Yeah. What, so the strategies changed over time, yeah. right? So at first, uh, you know, the U.S. came in with what this light light footprint, yes. and there was such strong public support for the war in Afghanistan. I think in there was the only US? in the U.S. Yeah. only one congresswoman from California voted against it, unanimous. Yeah. Um, the U.S. was attacked. It was a time of war. I was actually here in Tashkent on 9-11. So like do you think that uh, the the invasion or like like ex-ante when, when they were making decision it wasn't necessarily as bad as the Iraq decision? No because okay. the, it was the UN was very supportive there's huge international support NATO so when yeah. NATO made this decision right. Have you watched the movie called War Machine? So let's talk about Uzbekistan okay. right? Uh, why uh, do you think that so many, uh, for so many Uzbeks, like contemporary Uzbeks, Afghanistan seems like a completely different place, mm -hmm. culturally, in many ways, that Uzbeks don't even think that we are neighbors. Like, what, what do you think, what's the reason? Because they don't know them. Okay. And also because they've Why not... Why don't they know them? Because they've not been able to go there. I see. They've, I mean, it's, it's really amazing to me. Um, I've even met several, you know, uh, Uzbek scholars of Afghanistan who've never been. Wow. To Afghan and they speak languages. Pretty good, right? Yeah, yeah, amazing. But they don't have access. What, what Afghans think about Uzbeks, like Uzbekistan and Uzbeks? Uh, so they kind of have Uzbekistan and Tajikistan in like one bucket, in one, yeah. and they probably know like Tajikistan a little better because there's a big Tajik-speaking population that can access Tajik rock stars, music. Oh, really? So okay. yeah, so it comes through music um, and culture and Tajik television and music videos, you know, because this is what's interesting. Yeah. Um, they just see it as very different culturally. Do they think they're different culturally? Uh, well, oh. yes, because the way the women appear, oh, I, I mean, dancers, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean. It's too yeah. different, okay. Um, the accent's a little different. And um, Uzbekistan actually has a very positive reputation. Yeah. Okay. Um, I remember I was living in Kabul in the late 2000s, like it was like 2008, 2009, when the first power lines were brought from oh, Uzbekistan. Yeah, yeah. And, and so all of a sudden Kabul had 24-7 power. Oh, wow. Didn't have it before and was like thankful to the people of Uzbekistan. Wow. Apparently the power came like from Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, but Uzbekistan got all the credit okay. uh, for this. And so people see them as strong and developed, but also, you know, just as I think Afghans, Uzbeks, people from Uzbekistan have sort of negative cultural stereotypes. Yeah. Of they're backwards, yeah, they're not yeah, very smart. Yeah. Well, I think the stereotype of, of Uzbeks and Tajiks in, in the former Soviet and Turkmen's, right, is yeah, that yeah, like yeah. they're corrupted. They drink yeah. vodka, they allow men and women to intermingle, yeah. and like this isn't good. So they, they have all they oh, all yeah. Set aside. Oh, yeah. Where do uh, good institutions come from? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Okay. Um, so I, I don't believe in cultural explanations, right? I'm glad to hear that. I'm actually very relieved to hear that. Yes, because I don't I, believe uh, in culture. In fact, I, don't, I actually kind of reject the entire term. What about geography? Uh, no. Where are the good institutions coming from? Well, they're learning from what others have done, right? Yeah, but still, I mean, how can I say? When I say good institutions, because I think Uzbekistan is lucky in, in other ways because we had our uh, f like we were part of the big country and then now it's like 15 small countries and right. those some of those countries are pretty well like right. you know Georgia or something so we yeah. were like well we were just like Georgia you know 25 years ago and right. they're now so much better than us right. we can we can you know relate right. but if you are in some country uh, like Afghanistan or not, not even Afghanistan like say sub-Saharan Africa or something mm -hmm. that 
had bad institutions all the time. Yeah. They can't even relate to, you know, South Africa or, or, or North Africa. Like, they basically are like kind of stuck in that place in terms of comparing themselves to somebody. Right, and I think that what we, so when I hear people say like Afghanistan always had bad institutions, Yeah. right? So, all right, then this is a question that we'll probably both of us, like, I, I, don't I, know. I don't know the answer to. Let's write a book. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when you read this development economics literature, right. um, what they say is like, you know, if you have a poor country, throw money into it, build schools, build roads, build hospitals, right. wells, and, and so on, and the development will come. Right. So if you, if you read like Jeffrey Sachs, right. let's, you know, let's call a spade a spade, right, basically. So like, when you read Jeffrey Sachs, he says like basically, or, or, or people, you know, who, yeah. who drink this Kool-Aid, right. they're like, you know, white countries are poor because they can't get, they can't get their kids go to school. Mm -hmm. So they run like millions of RCTs how to like make sure that kids go to school. Right. And here I am, I'm like, I'm from Uzbekistan where mm -hmm. everybody goes to school, yeah. where schools aren't bad. Necessarily, very good. Uh, to the level of our GDP is almost absolutely, a, absolutely. It's a very huge good. accomplishment. Exactly, it's a huge accomplishment. So, and so we have schools, we have hospitals, we have roads, we have electricity, and whatever, and we don't have you know economic growth. Right. And for me, that puzzle was so frustrating because yes. you know I came to read econ literature primarily because I was from the country that wasn't very developed. And I was like. So what's this, and you read this through those papers and, and RCTs and whatever about vaccination. Like everybody's vaccinated yeah. here. Like everybody goes, and, and I was like, all right, what what do we do if in a country where everybody's vaccinated, goes to school, has roads, has transportation, has you know, a, a, you know, electoral commission? What do we do? And what's your take? Let unleash people. Okay, open up. Open up, and. And I think we're seeing this now, right? Yeah, uh, hopefully. We're seeing yeah. some of it. We're seeing, you know, growth is not so bad. Yeah. There, there's some benefits from this opening up. Um, but then not opening up this partial reform, uh -huh. if it stalls, could create real risks, right? So it can go back or you know, yeah. people might be frustrated with reforms. They like, you know. Or it just stops. It stops, okay. And that could be a bad equilibrium. Yes, right? I agree, yeah. So, um, I think the, just unleashing people's creativity here, because you have all the ingredients. Yes, uh, we have all the ingredients, yes. but I think like, so we in econ, they, they teach you to think about necessary conditions and sufficient Fish, conditions, right. right? So a lot of the times, this development economics literature that I get a little bit frustrated about is, they talk about those education and so on as sufficient right. for growth. Right. And I think it was no. a prime example no, it's that the says- institutions. So yeah, of course. So uh, and you think that the fact that we weren't able to develop for the last you know thirty years was that quality of our institutions didn't match up with the quality of our human capital? Yes, exactly. Okay. There's a Good. mismatch. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, so this is where we disagree with people like you know Sachs. It's the institutions. It's yeah. It's not geography. So, so right? you are like more you you agree more with like Achamoglu kind yeah, of yeah, crowd. Yeah, of course. I see. Of course. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about Professor Murtazashvili okay. and and the fact that you study you know. Central Asia, how does your family react to it? And when you went to Afghanistan, like, did people call you up and say, are you crazy? I didn't tell my parents. Really? Yeah. The first you did time not I went, tell? No. Oh. <clears throat> I'm one of five children. Okay. And I told my siblings, and I told them not to tell. Oh, And wow. then the first time I went, I told my mother after I came back. Wow. And do you have any, you know, kind of, uh, like regrets that you s started studying that kind of uh, very no. tumultuous region? No. no. Uh, so I lived here for five years. Okay. Um, in 90, from 97 to 2002. In Uzbekistan. In Uzbekistan. Yeah. 
Um, and I, w I started this work as a Peace Corps volunteer. And so in the United States, the Peace Corps is considered very prestigious. Yes. It's a very like honored thing to do. And so uh, I had the full support of my family um, to, to go. My parents were so proud of me that I got accepted and that you know, I was going to do this thing. So it's considered, it's a no, very... To be fair, Afghanistan yeah. is way sound different though. Like, yes. Uh. But I think at that point, and then I stayed here for five years, my parents got used to this, right? My family got used to this, that I was in the this stance someplace. And then the first time I went to Afghanistan, I didn't tell them. Um, I told them when I came back, and I explained what it was and why I was doing it and that it was okay. And I, you know, I've been in these regions for a long time and I can navigate this. And then I just kept going. Okay. Um, and so they kind of got used to the fact that you're working in this kind of yes. uh, place. I yes, see. Yes. Uh, when you were studying this region, and let me ask you a question about Uzbekistan one more time, I guess, in a different sure. framing. Uh, give, given that what I know about it, do you think that current enforcement in Uzbekistan can make it a, a, a normal country? Uh, but, but, but normal, I mean, uh, the one with, you know, Existing courts, checks and balances, institutions, and so on, like uh, that, you know, the politics will defend the freedoms of people and so on. How long, like, does current reforms will lead there? Or asking differently, how long do you think it takes for Uzbekistan to become like a normal country by those indicators? So let's first talk about our assumptions about yeah. Uzbekistan. I think Uzbekistan is. Um, a strong country. Yes. And I think that, so my, my views on Uzbekistan I think differ from many analysts um, because I've lived here on the ground for so long, right? Yeah. And the state here is strong, it's not weak, yes. it's purposeful, it can provide public goods and services, it's very capable in doing lots of things and provides a lot of things to its citizens. Yes. Right? So, um, unlike some other states in the region, like the government here during the Karimov years didn't take everything. Yeah. It invested quite yes. a lot. I think this is a common mis misconception. Um, so there's a lot of investment in public goods. And I honestly, I don't think that the changes here will have to be that hard. It's getting there and That's making it. the political decisions to make those changes. So um, will the current reforms first? We don't really know what the current reforms are. The president made a speech a couple of days ago and talked about democracy yeah, and, human and, rights. and all human rights and all of these things, but those changes haven't been made yet, yes. right? So are those the reforms that will actually happen? Or are these plans, or what is this? Well, um, and there's a, you know the development strategy. We see some kind of roadmap, but even if we look at that strategy, it's for, what's happened is very different. Um, so the current reforms, I think, if they keep going, yes, the okay. country will be successful. But they have to keep going, and there's big risks along this road. All right. Um, so there was there is this guy. Mm -hmm. His name is Sergey Guria. Uh -huh. He's kind of yeah, um, yeah. famous here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a recent interview, uh, he said that Uzbekistan may reach a level of GDP of Kazakhstan in like next you know 30 years, mm -hmm. which I think is really bullish about Uzbekistan. Well, what do you think? Do you think? No, I think so. You think so I think there's huge capabilities in here. In like 30 years, we can yes. be like Kazakhstan. Yes. Okay, even sooner. Really? really? Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, I think even sooner. I think he's I not. I've updated my priors then. Yes. No, I think there's real potential here. What, what is your, in your opinion, that is like a most signature reform that uh, Mirziyoyev accomplished? The openness. In trade or? In, in trade, in foreign movement. Uh, movement. 
and open, I just mean openness in general. It, it was a fairly easy reform to do, right? Allowing people from neighboring countries to visit here. Yes. I think this has really helped the image of the country, um, allowing outsiders to come here, making it so easy for people to access. What about like freedom of speech and stuff? Uh, I mean, yes, I, yes. I'm grateful to him, like personally, I yes. guess, that I can. And this is what I mean, like openness. Like um, to me, we, so I think that we think about the reforms in the wrong way. I think when policymakers and experts think about reforms, we think about what the state should do. And look about the government's <laughs> doing this, and the government's doing that, and this policy is good, this yeah. policy is that. I think of it some, some very differently. And one of the things that really frames my thinking is understanding the difference between a negative right and a positive right. A positive right is what we think governments should do for us. So the government should provide us health care. This is Soviet, right? Yeah, Lots of yeah, positive yeah, yeah. rights. The government's going to give you stuff. You Education. Know, housing. You have car, a right yeah. to something from the state. Yes. I think it's much more powerful to think about negative rights. Yeah. To think about what the state should not do to you. Yes. So I know this is like really American, and I yeah. hate like doing yeah. that like America, yeah. this. Yeah. But America, the Bill of Rights in the United yeah. States is enumerated negative rights. Yeah. What the state shouldn't should do. do. Uh, Wait. It protects you from the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the state shall not interfere in your right to freedom of association. The sh state shall not interrupt your right to property. The state shall not do this. It says what the state should not do. Too often we think about what the state should do. This was a problem with Afghanistan. Yes. The state should do everything. It'll yeah, make yeah, everyone yeah. better off. Not thinking about like the complete weakness of the government apparatus. Or like capabilities. Capabilities, yeah. and it overloaded it. It like yeah. it caused such but corruption. Uzbekistan still has a lot of that too. So, what I think is so important here is, the state, can, create space for people, and that's where I see the greatest success here is the openness in society, in culture in expression, in creative expression, in um, the, the ability of people to talk about issues on social media without fear of censorship, yes. without fear that someone's going to come to their house and do something bad. Yeah. I think many of us outsiders are actually more afraid to speak yes, then, than people on the inside. Yeah. And I think we don't realize how quickly this is changing, um, but it's that freedom to express yourself. I don't, I'm not even going to think about the government reforms this it's the state rolling back what it's doing That's and this is a very different way to th think about reforms here's a new policy yeah, yeah. here's a new decree yeah, yeah. and and i think sometimes that if you know if i would ask the government to do something differently it's like the president made a speech a couple of days ago about the importance of freedom of speech and he says we're going to have a new media law yeah. But the new media law is going to be about what the state can do to support the media. Yeah. You don't need a media law. Exactly. Yeah. Don't. No media law. <laughs> and actually, this would be the best media law is no media law. Exactly. Yeah, right? Yeah. But it's a very different way of doing things. When I talk to officials here, yeah. and, I, and I'm being, yeah. I really believe that many of them believe that this is the way that it should be done because yeah, yeah. this is the way it has been done. And to say, well, you're, we, everyone shares the same goals. Right? A free yeah, media. Yeah. How do you go about doing it? Well, there's many different ways we could go about doing it. But the, the government still continues to use some of its old tools. Yes. Right? And changing those tools is very, very hard, even if the objectives have changed. Right? 
think if you have a hammer, like, you know, a lot of things look like a nail. But I have a personal story about okay. this, what you're saying, which I never kind of reflected in the way you did, I think. Uh, once I was invited to the, to the, basically, the government to talk about promotion of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And they're like, so we are getting this new decree that will give people seed money to start businesses. And my main argument, not me only, like there were some bankers in, in the room, we're all raising the question saying like we don't need government to dis redistribute money to people for their entrepreneurial pursuits right. because that's not a constraint no. that they're facing no and and i was trying and the, at the end there was this kind of kind of heated debate and, and some government employees said so what we should do now and i said not doing would help more like not doing anything yes. he's like and he said this very interesting he said if we just sit down and like put our hands onto hands, like you know, slajar ruki. It's a Russian word, right? Like tie our hands. Yeah. Tie our hands. Uh, who will help them? He said. And I said, if you tie your hands, it's the best help you can exactly. you can do. Exactly. And for them to to convey this message was really hard. One of the um, persons I interviewed for uh, uh, Vice Minister of Finance, Odil Bekisakov, it's the video is going to be up very soon. Uh, he, uh, we were talking about economic development again, like a little bit debating it uh, on, you know, on, on the video. And I said, and he said, like, what should we do? He, he asked me, like, you know, on, on the spot. And I said, I don't know what should we do, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I know a lot of things that we should not do. Yes. And he said, everybody knows what should not do. Doing is harder. But I, I think we as a society, we uh, don't appreciate the way that not doing sometimes helps so much more than yes. doing. Right. And, how do you think we should, you know, convey this idea? So I, it's it's hard, right? Because the president says we're going to grow this. Here's our targets. Yeah, here's yeah. our goals. Well, maybe for things in the private sector, like just understand that it's not your goal. Yeah. And it's hard. How do you convey that, though. Well, it's hard, right? <laughs> and this is the biggest change to me. Isn't a change in policy? Isn't a technical yeah. solution? It's when you're so used, I mean, the people lived in fear of not meeting a cotton quota, yeah, right? Yeah. So like, you have to achieve this, the government needs to provide this. And when you're telling people that um, the best thing you can do, like you will actually stimulate the economy more by not getting involved in these things. Oh yeah, I agree. It's hard. It is extremely- So we have to tie the hands, right? But it's also changing the incentives of officials. Because how are, what are the KPIs, right? Exactly. How are officials, how are officials, how is their performance measured? Yes. So I teach public management. There's no public management school. I mean, there's one public yeah. administration university under the president. I work there, by the way. Okay. There's not <laughs> enough public management governance education here, um, which is unfortunate. Um, I think it's a real area of opportunity to help people understand like the goals and targets that they set can be set in a very different way. But is it the difference between seen and unseen? So let me let me frame okay. it a little bit different. Okay. Um, let's say you are a governor of some province or some uh, like Harkim of some uh, district, like whatever you are, you are leader. Let's say, and then you have uh, superiors that will come and visit your uh, rayon or or vilayat to say how you're doing, and they will try to you know measure how you've been working by looking at what you did. And when they come, you usually go around and show them like a new shop a new, you know, a factory or something, or a new hospital or school or something. So, so when you have some public funds and there is no, you know, say a Congress that will, you know, distribute the money and you are basically the, right. the sole decision maker in that situation, mm -hmm. you would be very much interested in investing money in things that can be tangible, you can see, you can feel them, 
You can smell them. I don't right. know, whatever. Right, right, right. But you will be very disincentivized to put money in things that cannot be seen. For right. example, let's say a hospital needs a roof repair. Right. Which, when, when it's repaired, nobody's going to say, hey, look at the new roof. Right. Or, like, infrastructure, you know, like, we need to build, you know, electricity grids. Right. If you build them or if you repair them or whatever, spend a lot of money, nobody's going to see them. Or like, you know, you change the water system. Right. A lot of things right, are right. unseen. Mm -hmm. So if you are a Hakim and if you're a rational Hakim, you would want to go and invest in things that you can show easily, put the pictures on, on social media right. or whatever, and say like, hey, I'm Hakim and look what, what I did. Right. And, and in that situation, sorry, I just <laughs> threw it away. And in that situation, uh, uh, you would want to invest in things. Yeah. Like this, and I think in terms of the problem, like should we like put our hands together, kind of you tie your hands, uh, tie, tie our yeah, hands. Yeah. Uh, question is that they want to do stuff to be seen that they are doing something, right? And not doing appears to them as being lazy, incompetent, and all those things. So right. How how do we get out of this equilibrium? Two ways. One. Do do you agree with this? I though? agree with you. Okay. So in, in in management, we call that measuring outputs versus measuring outcomes. Okay. Oh. All right. Oh. So outcomes. Yes. Outcomes. Out, out. So you know, and, and I was actually working in the U.S. government when I worked for USAID. All of a sudden, in the '90s, um, there was this massive bureaucratic reform program that we had called Reinventing Government to make government more customer oriented. And this was Al Gore. Actually, it was his child um, and yeah. it was to bring private sector practices into the public sector and uh, so all of a sudden we are not supposed to how do we measure our effectiveness as a government official so I'm working for USAID in Uzbekistan and normally I would measure it by like the number of women who attended a training the number of bridges that were built really? yes okay the more effective that's the output yes Right? It's, it's what scene, did right? we like do? Yeah. Built this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this grant, yeah. right? And then we said, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to measure outcomes. So, what are, do public opinion polls to understand the number of the population that's educated on women's issues, right? Or that does something based on something we think our program would provide. Currently, here, um, the government doesn't measure outcomes; it measures outputs. You remember? Happy about makes, it. Yeah. So remember, um, gosh, it was like the '90s. Uh, under the previous government, they built all of these colleges. It says, yeah, yeah, yeah everywhere, in the middle of the beautiful field. Yeah. places. Yeah. And to me, this illustrated the incredible capacity of this government, right? Oh. The capacity of the state to execute, which is not trivial. Trivial, yeah. right? But the, they were measuring that as the out outcome it was just an output Correct. the outcome of education it was empty by the way they were empty yeah, yeah, yeah. middle of nowhere yeah. they've gotten rid of many of them i yeah. think but, but the, 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 so can i just yes. a little bit on, it's a good point i think so when you are a governor right so yes. you build this let's say yes. and when your superior comes in you're like hey look there's a six-story building and right. the guy says like good job you built like a nice let's say and he like you know goes away yeah but if you go to a village like uh, we have a country house and, right. in one place and somebody was talking to us uh, he says gotcha. um my kids are really struggling about their school. And I said, like, why? He said, because they built a new lyceum that was so far, there's no public transportation that goes there. We don't have a car. And basically, they're not going to school anymore right. because we go there once a month just to check in, and we're not going because it's so far, and it's, not, uh, it's very uncomfortable right. to, to attend. Right. And so the attendance was probably going down because of yes. those projects. But then right. if they would repair the existing school, it would be hard to show it off. Right. And so I think the incentives that were so perverse right. and, and are, are now still that to show something tangible, like 
six-story building from scratch, you know? So we, you know, in economics, we yeah. call this the principal agent problem, yes. right? So normally when we think of public officials, yeah. the principal, there's the principal and then there's the agent, yeah, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, here there's a problem because the government officials are accountable to the Hakims are yeah. accountable yeah. to the Their center, yeah. not to the people. Correct. So how do you change this? The only, you know, the reason I think democracy is important, yeah. really, is because it reveals preferences, right? Uh, I think it matches preferences. Matches preferences. Yeah. It, you know, yeah. it allows. So rather than using um, like incentive compatibility, incentive, yes, it's, it, rather than saying, you know. We, we measure the effectiveness of the Hakim by the number of schools. You measure his effectiveness by people's satisfaction with his work. Yeah, right? and the best show is the elections. Yes, the elections shows whether this is good or working or not. Yeah. I think of it as a public policy issue, right? Yeah, yeah, Rather yeah. than a freedom issue. It's, it it's an effectiveness issue. It allows governments to be more effective. So when, and if the government doesn't want to fully democratize or doesn't feel like it can, I mean, the president's spoken about having Hakims be elected. Yeah, yeah I'm he's, not sure what will be implemented. Yes, yeah. but he's said this himself. This is really important. The government's done these virtual receptions. I mean, I, I spoke yes. a lot about this, yeah. and, and one of the pushbacks I get, uh, which I, I don't necessarily agree, was that, all right, if we let Hakims to be elected, right. the incentives that they have right now is probably not compatible with the population. They agree with this too. But they don't, they think there's this, that, you know what's, the, the word populism in Uzbekistan has a little bit yes, different, different meaning, uh, meaning mm -hmm. than in general. Yes. But they think that the, the new generation of Hakims will be populist, populists who would, uh, you know, come with very extreme views of a anything to get elected. So like, the, they will be very, you know, polar, they will say like, oh, I'm going to do this or that, or, or something bad happens. And also that, the the fact that there is no accountability to superiors and the accountability will be only to people there will be no accountability they fear and since the democratic machine you know people only vote every you know four years or something the fact that they kind of screw up in the middle you, you can't really fire them because they will you know persist so what, 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 what would your take be on that how would you sell me the democracy basically so you know it's not demo it's just about the effectiveness of um it's this the government has raised expectations of citizens. Yes. Okay. So the government's fearful that there's going to be extremism. Like, yes. I, I don't mean like in religious the yeah, in the yeah. views, right? But what do we know? Nothing. We know. Yeah. We know. <laughs> what do we? What is? What is like institutional design yeah. theory tell us? Is that there's a median voter, yes. right? And so parties will converge to towards the center. Yes. So of course, yes, may there may be some crazy crazy people, people. Yeah. and in fact. What we've seen in the past year is actually the emergence of these voices yes. in political parties, yeah. right? There's been some very yeah. controversial people saying very controversial yeah. things yeah. about... Which, which I'm glad that they are saying Yes, this. Yeah. women should stay home, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. This is Dusov, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. He was oh, saying like, oh yeah, oh, yeah he's sh women should stay home, right? Yeah, I wrote about it. I said like a lot of people share his view. Of course. So you have to like... Yes. Yeah. So what do you keep it hidden? Yeah. And then allow it, people to debate it rather than saying this isn't a view we yeah. want. Like, let's talk. Right? I think bad views will be uh, under the light. Yes. If you say like bad things, people will realize very soon that it's a bad and idea. And you're accountable. So the people here, yeah. so government has to trust its people, right? Yeah. And it's a hard process. It's not that like the it's government fear, it's, a, it's, uh, it's also, yeah, it is a leap of faith. 
but it is deeply ingrained into this old system, which is, you know, it was a, it was a result of the Soviet legacy, is that a government official, and this is what I see in Afghanistan yeah. as well, it's like how many schools you build, this is yeah, how yeah. you're, rather than what the quality of the education, and how do you measure the quality of the education by parent satisfaction. Are parents happy if parents had more input into the design of schools? And, and you see the government learning these lessons, too. Huh. Let me ask you a question about authoritarianism okay. that is cultural. So let me frame it a little bit different. So, you know, among educated elites in Tashkent, in Uzbekistan, uh, there is some kind of authoritarian tendencies that I feel uh, that I cannot really express, and I want your opinion on that. Like, uh, recently, uh, our friend, Nikita Makarenka, uh -huh. Uh, said that you know he, he wrote this uh, series of articles about uh, pharmacies that were selling yes. bad stuff yes. basically, yes. and he was very vocal, very passionate about yes. uh, getting them uh, you know accountable for it or whatever. Right. And recently he wrote in his Telegram channel uh, that one of the pharmacies that he was trying to push right. was closed by a thing called Maski Show in Uzbekistan. It means like a special ops yeah. of the Ministry of Interior, like people wearing like right. masks and, and guns. They closed that shop down. And so, ch ch just to contextualize it a little bit, the, the Smasky shows that used to close down legitimate businesses before, like be, before Mirziyayev. Like it was like a right. force right, that police right. used a lot for, for petty things like closing a restaurant and right. so on and so forth. So, and, um, and he was pretty happy about it. Yeah. When I, when I read it, I was a little bit disappointed because when I thought is that, oh, you know, without a court order or something, you know, the power was executed there. I don't think there will be any court decision on that. So basically now, again, the, the executive branch is making a decision. In that situation, it might be very noble cause, right? So the pharmacy is yeah. acting badly, maybe. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah. But like in a normal country, in a, in a, even by laws in Uzbekistan, how this process should, should be played out is that, you know, probably the prosecutor's office has to open the case then probably Nikita Makarenko will be uh, a witness yes. and the judge will say, all right, you are fined the pharmacy or something, or right. like you revoking your license yes. or something, but not like close down because you acted badly. So there is no court here again. So what I'm thinking is, so this is like first case. I'm not saying Nikita Makarenko is the only guy who does that. Right. Uh, or, and he isn't the, the, the most crazy guy in terms of, in terms of that. And um, so... Then, uh, I'll tell you another example. In general, what I think is that among even educated elites and some, somebody uh, who are very progressive in Uzbekistan, they have this tendency that there's, they are the good guys and then there's the bad guys. And if they had a power over the bad guys, the problems will be solved. So, like, if, you know, if I were a king, I would close all these bad pharmacies. Or, like, if I were a king, I would, like, you know, prosecute all those hakims who are corrupt. Or there, there's something that people think about not trusting institutions, even even the very progressive ones, they think that if we let the institutional thing continue, then the outcomes will not be reached. Like, how would you think about this? So I, so I'm, I'm you're telling your story yeah. about Uzbekistan, and I'm thinking about my country, the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think about many of my friends who absolutely hate Trump. Yes. Absolutely hate, and you know what? Yeah. They would probably say the same thing. I agree. Right? Yeah. Okay. So I don't Just think this. Is, Times. I mean, yes. Yeah. I don't think this is authoritarianism. I don't believe in cultural explanations okay. at all. Um, uh, I'm not saying cultural. No, no. Where but authoritarian, where this tendency comes from, it's. I think it's a human tendency, right? Like, act. Let I want to act. Let me do the judge. I mean, everybody wants to be king, right? 
I mean, even in the U.S., people say, like, if I could do it myself, I would. And there's a tendency to think that people who are different from you and have different ideas don't know. Yes, don't know better. Don't know better. And you yeah. know better, and you should be allowed to make decisions. And the reason, like, democracy is important, not from a normative human rights yeah, perspective, yeah. but from sort of a policy effective view, is because it brings people towards the middle it allows this counterbalance of ideas, yes. right? Because everybody on both sides believes that they're right. Yes. Right? Yeah. And then it, it allows you to protect everyone's rights. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, you live in Tashkent, you live, you know, you, you're a progressive, yeah, you've got yeah. all these great ideas, you think other people are stupid. Yes. There's, there's this tendency that other people are stupid. And like that's, that's, that's a global phenomenon. No, but, but what, yeah. what, I, what I'm thinking is, like, because we have a, such a thin elites in, yes. in terms of mm -hmm. being progressive and unfortunately even those like I'll give you a better example yeah uh, the Mahalas like this is some backwards thing they don't yeah, really know what they're doing this no, is I, like I, I have a very good example I think yes. that, that, okay. that, that, that um, there was a, a famous uh, I'm not sure famous like some bloggers that were talking about uh, renovations in Uzbekistan yeah, yeah. And, uh, the Hakimiyat was basically taking down the garage the yeah. garage like yeah, people yeah, like yeah, yeah, car yeah, 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 yeah. so they were Demolishing these car parks of people that belongs to people. Yes. And one blogger goes up online and says, you know, those are ugly. And I agree that they should take it out. And, and again, there is no, like, this is somebody's property. Yes. The government is taking away illegally. Right, right. And I may agree with you that they are ugly. Yeah. I may agree with you that, you know, cars are bad. I agree. I'm very progressive. I also hate cars probably or whatever. Right. But I don't believe, I'm not in that, like, if you like say do i agree that the pharmacy case and then demolishing garages are the same idea yes. is that do i believe that selling drugs without prescription is bad right i do do i think that this pharmacy is abusing power or whatever i do do i think they should be taken to court of justice i do do i do i think some something has to be done there i do but i don't believe that uh doing good using bad means will just like will justify the right. ends. Because it justifies anybody else. So we have a term for this in social sciences, yeah. procedural justice. Correct. Okay. So um, in fact I did some research on this in China with on a group of scholars. On there, there, this procedural justice is also in like HR and management literature, yeah. like when you are like hiring, firing and so on. Yeah. Right. So the most pow the power the state has to gain and, and this would be my advice to the government, isn't just by showing outputs, it's by showing that you treat people fairly. Right, and this is to me like if you talk about what's happened in the past few months here with the SNOS issue, yeah. and the president's talked about this, yeah. right? It's a violation of people's rights. Yes, and that they're not. So we, uh, I did a group. Um, I have a paper that's coming out with a group of scholars um, in China, and uh, we're working on uh, this issue of SNOS in China. It's yeah. a huge issue there, right? Yeah. Huge country. The government's tried to urbanize, and what we found in China is that. People are much more satisfied with the process, not by the, the compensation doesn't explain it. It's how they're treated. When they, when they have procedural justice, when they feel like the government has treated them fairly, yeah. they're much more likely to be satisfied with the outcome than compensation alone. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's so, that. so, and this is, um, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about this research here because I'd like to replicate this here oh, okay. uh, to understand the SNOS process because it's how you're treated by the state, not just the compensation level yeah, yeah, yeah. that matters. And this has a huge effect on people's confidence in the state, the confidence in reforms, 
right? So people may see schools being built. People may see some nice outcome. But if they don't feel like they're being treated fairly along the way, it's going to confuse people's expectations. I see. Right? It creates a real danger. Yeah, I, I, uh, what, what I was trying to, like, frame you, I guess, maybe, maybe again, it's the wrong word, but, like, why do you think that, you see, like, everybody agrees that property rights are good. Right. But then, so a lot of progressive think that property rights are not important when it comes to the ugly garage that you have yeah. in, in, your, in your... This is like, true. I mean, look, we have the same debates in the U.S. Like NIMBYs? Oh, well, yeah, NIMBY <laughs> and, like, uh, urban planning, yeah. right? I mean, people say, like, oh, these buildings are so ugly. Yeah. I mean, we have the same conversations about things. So they need to be taken down uh, because they're not in code, right? Yeah. But... Uh, they're not in you right. condominium associations, yeah. right? You have yeah. to have your house yeah, in a certain yeah. way, get get rid of it if it's not ugly. I think everybody believes it, but they they operate under the, this constraint that like we know that we can't just do this. There's this expectation that these the rule of law exists and that people are going to push back that you have to go by procedures. Huh. I want to connect this discussion to other discussion that okay. is very uh, very common in Uzbekistan. It's about you know government-owned corporations or state-owned yes, corporations. So uh, a lot of people think that we have a bad airline or bad railways or bad whatever. And this is like a common knowledge. Like I don't think anybody would right. say like Uzbekistan Airlines is pretty good. And they say it's bad because it's managed bad. So if I was, you know, a CEO, like I would make you know meals tasty or you yeah. know airport should be like. And 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 in a lot of conversations, it feels like they think that. SNOS is bad, it's a management problem. They think SOE is bad, yes. it's a management problem. Yeah. They think that, you know, our you know ministers are, are, are pulled around, whatever. Management problem. Right. But I don't think it's like a, a system. Systemic problem. Right. Pro problem. And they think if, let, let only if they were there, if they were the decision maker, right. those problems. Yes. You know, like, how do we. Information problem, right? I mean, yeah, it's. It is information problem. But yes. what do you think, like, we as a society can, can get over? Like, what I'm, I guess it's a rant right now, is that. The, the progressives here in Uzbekistan, I don't find them very compelling is because that, I mean, the things I criticize, I agree, but the way they think that it should be solved is, again, another way of, of authoritarian power. You well, this know? is, I mean, to be honest, yeah. this is the same problem we have in the U.S. I agree, the progressives I think that they can solve every problem and they know better <laughs> and people can't make choices yeah. and they're too stupid to know better and those two people in, you know, rural wherever, yeah. they're dumb yes. and they need the enlightened state to come and from save East them. Coast or yes, West Coast from or the or East yeah. Coast, you know, and like <laughs> yeah. flyover country. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, what idiots, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And the poor people. I mean, this is not you. What I'm just saying yeah. is, this is not unique. The difference is that we have, in like the U.S., and we have places where these ideas can be openly contested and debated. Yes. And that's why they never win unilaterally, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? But of course, they think this. Right. So yeah. I shouldn't be quite uh, too no, frustrated about is, it. No, um, I think what you should be frustrated about is that if. What you describe isn't just what people think, right? It's not that people think they're better. Everybody thinks they're better. Yeah, That's a normal thing. Yeah. But what are the checks on people thinking they're better? So the, the case with the pharmacy, yeah. what we should be upset is the, with the procedures, and the yeah. procedures we weren't... We should be furious about it. People should be furious about that, yeah. but people aren't. People are happy. They're like, oh, good, good job, Nikita. You know, like, right. now the pharmacy is right. closed. So people, so are the procedures available? Um, the other reason why this is difficult here is too often 
governments in the past used these procedures to punish people. I agree. Arbitrarily. Yeah. Yes, yes. And sometimes the procedures were used to get fire code violation. Yeah. We're going to shut you down, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. This ha it was arbitrary yes. use of procedures. Yes, I agree. And so the procedures were used but only against some people. Correct. So, I absolutely agree with yes. you. Yeah. So the procedures are important. The procedures need to be simplified. There need to be greater like citizen input into what the procedures should be. The procedures here are incredibly complicated. Right? That's oftentimes why people go around them. Yeah. Okay, um, and then there was like, you know, uh, a lot of people like Singapore in Uzbekistan yeah, and yeah. they don't really understand what's, what's about, like, right. they think it's like there is a way of enlightening authoritarianism that you, yeah. can, you can solve the problem. And when I was talking about the snows and garage and whatever, uh, some, some people came out and said like, you know, in Singapore too, government built like buildings. And I'm like, no, they didn't. Like, they didn't violate their rights. And they think that the fact that Singapore was a very like poor fisherman's village that became, you know, skyscrapers or whatever, there was some sort of uh, government overreach. They're trying to think that Singapore also went through this way, and they're like, "No, you know, we are like Singapore. You know, we'll build no, out this garage, make these cities, and everybody right. will be happy about it." And I'm like, "No, the, the procedures are important, and they think that Lee Kuan Yew tied his hands." Yeah, yeah. So they th a lot of times people think that the the ends yes justify the means. justify the yes. the means that they are doing, and I think it's it's really unfair. So let's talk about American Uzbekistan. Let's like you know forget okay. about Uzbekistan in general. What do you think that uh, Uzbek you want the Uzbek officials to understand about America that they don't understand right now? I'm talking about officials, not people. General. I'm thinking like Uzbek, you know, bureaucracy or, or you know foreign relations. You know what's really interesting to me is in the conversations that I've had with many yeah. government officials here. I think this change in administration, like what especially yeah. like the 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 tumultuous years yeah. of Trump have taught people, government officials here, a lot about how the U.S. bureaucracy works. They didn't know, right? No. I think they thought, you know, the president says, so it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now they see, like, discord within the government, and they're also sort of, un like, America was always sort of reliable in certain things, and then there's uncertainty about American strategy and whether America is going to be a reliable ally in the future and whether they can count on America. And I think they're now seeing how like elections matter for policy in ways that they didn't before. Um, okay. Yeah. So uh, my my question is uh, more practical. Like uh, some, sometimes I think okay. that a lot of Uzbek officials think that American politics works just like our politics. No. And they when they are making relationship about America, they always think about having good relationship with American officials. Right. And they don't invest much in good relationship with American people or like then you know. There are very few like Uzbek think tanks in DC, or there's very few like lobbying in, from the journalists or from you know Thomas Friedman's of the world, or like, but some governments in the world like you know uh, Middle Eastern governments mm -hmm. and so on. They invest quite a bit on changing attitudes of Americans. Kazakhstan does Kazakhstan, quite a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. Azerbaijan, for example, I yeah, think. Yeah. They, they they understand U.S. politics very well because they know that to influence politics, like push the envelope, they need support of you know some coastal educated yes. elites basically that's what I'm trying to say yes. and I think Uzbekistan was kind of lagging behind it they were like very uh, proactive with you know state department workers or you know military or whatever but they were pretty reluctant to you know give a speech in the university like it's unheard of I never yes. heard like a Uzbek president or a minister of foreign affairs coming to some university and like right. giving a speech was like unheard of right and it's still I, I never so happened. I invite the president to come to speak to my university <laughs> foreign minister please come we'd love to have you Pittsburgh? Um, in Pittsburgh please uh, come and visit us yeah um, I think this is this is what yes what would oh I think it would do a lot do, do you think yes that would it would learn? do a lot um, 
obviously, I, and I think like I see the the, the Uzbek ambassador in Washington is extremely active, yeah, actually doing this yeah, kind yeah. of thing, and he's actually visited my university. Oh yeah, um, he visited the Pittsburgh City Council and stuff like that. Right? Yes, yeah. he visited the City Council. Unfortunately, he visited when the students weren't there. Oh okay. Um, but you know, I just saw on his Twitter uh, yesterday he was visiting students at American University answering questions. That's great. Yeah, yes. so that's like a new doing this, now, and okay. he's very active with members of Congress and engaging them. So I mean, I see his activeness in this. I'm not sure if that's policy or him, yeah. um, but I think more people have to be doing that kind of work and meeting with people and engaging people, but it also means they have to open themselves to answering questions. Yeah, because is, nobody's going to yeah. want to just listen to someone give a speech yeah, yeah. and yeah, clap at him. They want to yeah. hear like what he has to say yeah. and be able to press him on difficult questions. questions. And, and it would be so great to see, because the president here is so popular yeah. and people just adore him. Yeah. And I think you know he's obviously very, very bright. It would be so great to hear him answer questions. So what do you think uh, that the U.S. government people knew about Uzbekistan? You wish they knew. That this country is extremely capable. I think... They underrate it? They underrate it. I agree. Completely <laughs> underrate this place. Um, I have many disagreements with my friends who are academics, right? Oh. They'll say Uzbekistan's a very weak state. It's a predatory state. Somebody sta says weak state? Oh, yeah. This is really surprising. Oh, yeah. It's very If anything, common. it's too strong. <laughs> right, well, but you know, you could say it's strong in the wrong ways, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's got a strong coercive capacity, yeah. and people tend to think that because for so long externally people focused on the police and the human rights and torture and those kinds of issues, and they saw the country almost unidimensionally through that lens. Oh, okay. Okay. So it kind of makes a very perverse picture of that. Of, so yes, yeah. the state's strong, and the state's using its force to get people to pick cotton and do these kinds of things, yeah. right? And that makes the state look actually weak. That's a weak state, yeah. oh, right? I understand why you said weak. Okay. So and this is usually how people, it's just relying on force alone oh. is not considered a strong state. And I think that people on the outside don't see this capacity and they don't see the state as a source of pot, that the state actually has a lot of legitimacy with the people because it's provided things for them. Um, and, um, I, you know, also people have, misconceptions about the region I think this is where like more PR would be very effective because it's right on the border with Afghanistan yeah, yeah. right and then there it's also on the border with Kazakhstan and still Americans think Kazakhstan is a land of Borat right <laughs> so it's like stuck between Borat and Afghanistan somebody asked me this recently like what is Americans perception of Uzbekistan I said quite frankly they don't have one yes I and when they do it would be something between Borat and Afghanistan yeah so in this show, like I try to ask uh, short questions, yeah. and it's like the, like okay. the end of the show. Okay. So, okay. so short answer like yes or no or short. Uh, okay. Kabuli pilaf or Uzbek pilaf? Samarkandi. Okay, I wanted to ask which one. Okay, uh, Bamyan Lake or Charvak Lake? Charvak. Uh, Douglas North or Elizabeth Ostrom? Oh, oh, Ostrom. Really? Oh yes. Okay. Um, Sax or Achamoglu? Echimoglu. Okay. Come on. Uh, RCTs or anthropological research? Anthropological research. Is Registan overrated? Registan? No. Uh, okay. Uh, what is the most underrated place in Uzbekistan? Dinao. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for your time, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your input, and I think it will be interesting for Fantastic people Fantastic questions. Thank you. Today our guest was uh, Jennifer Musazashvili. We talked uh, extensively about everything, and uh, I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Thank you, Professor Musazashvili.
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great questions, and I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you for listening to Hashimov's Economics. 